Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Saturday, November 11th. First and foremost, happy Veterans Day. It gets weird because today is officially Veterans Day, but it falls on a Saturday, so they want to give people the three-day weekend, the holiday. So technically, today is Veterans Day, but it was celebrated yesterday. Either way, shout out to the men and women that have been serving in our military, have served in our military. I can't even put into words the respect I have for the people that have made the greatest sacrifice possible. And also, shout out to my dad. He was in the Army during Vietnam. He is a veteran. His dad was a veteran. My grandfather, who I never met, but he was in the Japanese theater of World War II. And so I respect them. I respect all of my good friends that are currently in the military or were in the military. And I think it's just um, it's a good time of reflection on what it means to be free and what it means to stand up for our country. Because right now, obviously, a lot of chaos around the world a lot of pressure to either step back or go further into some of these conflicts. And yes, it's just been a time of reflection for me on all of that. So anyways, moving on, it is a beautiful Saturday, by the way. Uh, Started the morning off with some football, a run, a walk, and now some politics. And I'm going to start with a few topics, but the main things we're going to focus on today actually involve Italy. We're going to talk about fears of an Italian Guantanamo. What I mean is that Italy, apparently the Italian government is going to work with Albania to set up facilities to put immigrants or migrants in Albania, but under Italian control. So it would kind of take away accountability from the Italians and the European Union laws and regulations. So there could be some humanitarian issues there going forward. I also want to talk about how Giorgia Meloni, the current prime minister of Italy, is trying to put forth some reforms, I guess we could call them, that might not be good. They could give her a lot of power and they could also just lead to more political chaos. But first and foremost, I guess I want to talk about the cognitive dissonance I am seeing mainly on the left, mainly on the more progressive left, the younger left, and why it worries me about 2024. What I mean here is I've listened to callers call in on David Pakman's show on Fridays. I've listened to interviews with college students on campuses. I've looked at the numbers in states like Michigan. And young voters, and I talked about this, I guess, about a week ago, young voters are souring on Biden, whether it's his age, whether it's his handling of Israel. Obviously, there's the rhetoric going around that started even with people like Rashida Tlaib calling him a supporter of genocide in Palestine. Basically, I mean, I'm on Instagram and I'm on X and I see posts from friends, acquaintances, famous people, all of them my age that are on the progressive left, all of them are calling out Biden, saying they won't vote for him, shame on him. And it's interesting because there is a bit of a a cognitive dissonance here going on. And what I mean is that Biden is probably the best these progressives are going to get. And by not voting for him in 2024 or saying they're going to write someone in or just sit the election out, even though they may disagree with Biden, they may not think he's left enough, they might think he's too centrist, too pro-military, too neoliberal, whatever you want to say, he is the best they're going to get. And this election is so close 
Right now, I was reading that Biden is now losing in five of six of the swing states, which pretty much determine every election. I mean, California, unfortunately, doesn't matter as much as it used to. New York, Texas, well, Texas, maybe that's more of a toss up. But these six swing states are pretty much how the election is going to be determined. And Biden is doing much worse in them than before. And of course, we saw that New York Times poll, what out, I think about a week ago, talking about how most Democrats want someone else as well. His age is a problem. Trump is now ahead of him. Of course, it's far out. We're, you know, well, a little bit less than a year now, but it's still far enough out. But Biden needs to be significantly ahead of Trump in the polls due to how the pop or due to how the electoral college works in this country. And so right now those numbers are alarming. And so I, I was listening to some callers on a show I listened to, and they were explaining how they're on the left. They've always voted very left and they really don't like Biden. They think what he's doing in Israel is awful and they are not going to vote for him in 2024. And this just bothers me because if Trump wins 2024 and becomes president, his policies are going to be significantly, significantly more radical, right-wing, antithetical to progressivism than anything Biden has done. And, you know, I've talked about the Heritage Foundation's 25 pro- 2025 project where they're going to bring in things like Schedule F, gutting the civil service, making it right to work so you can fire anyone. There's a lack of understanding that the civil service actually needs good workers in it, and you can't just hire newbies and hope it's all going to run. But that is what Trump 2.0's administration would want to do, put in loyalists over, over skilled professionals that have experience. And of course, I'm always for innovation and efficiency and change, but this wouldn't be change. This would be just firing the so-called deep state and putting in Republican loyalists. And we know that Trump wants to silence the media. He's talked about going after like MSNBC and NBC News and CNN, even sometimes Fox News, because of course they've kind of criticized him lightly. Uh, Trump has talked about ending the Ukraine war within 24 hours, which probably means appeasing Putin because (laughs) there aren't just really easy solutions to this. He has talked about mobilizing the National Guard to stop any protests after the 2024 election. We know what he tried to do in 2020. He has also talked about, you know, executing drug dealers. That might be more difficult to actually do. He has called for violence. He has said Russia is not the problem. China is not the biggest threat. Hamas is not the biggest threat. It is the Democrats. It's the deep state. It's the bureaucracy. He wants to basically limit immigration and have a loyalty test where they don't let immigrants in if they're deemed not ideologically... I guess, aligned with what Trump wants. Anyways, I could go on for much longer about this, but when I hear people on the left say they're not going to vote because they don't like X or Y of what Biden has done, I just go, well, hold my beer because Trump 2.0 is going to be significantly worse. I mean, Biden is still trying to at least alleviate some forms of student loans. He also, and this has kind of gone under the radar, but he has pressured credit bureaus as well as collection companies to not report to credit bureaus medical debt for at least a year after the first bill comes due because as people know in the United States medical debt serious issue collection companies are brutal mean predatory and they can really sink your credit score as well and so Biden has actually worked to fight that 
Obviously, he is working on infrastructure, build back better, not perfect, but new bridges in Pennsylvania with, with the help of Governor Shapiro. Obviously looking great on that side, in my opinion. Also a good moral compass when it comes to what's been happening in Ukraine, what's been happening in Israel. This is a guy that at least seems to be, okay, he's old. We all know he's old. He kind of waddles along. It doesn't look great. But at the end of the day, this guy is kind of a parent in the room, and he at least understands the importance of the job and the necessity to be a moral leader. And I, so I just, I, this is kind of a call out to all of my progressive friends that are saying, oh, I might not even vote in this election because I'm pissed off at Biden. 2024, I think, is going to be one of those pivotal moments in history. And look, with JFK, or not JFK, RFK Jr. right now at like 22%, pretty much doing better than Ross Perot did even in, in the 90s. Or was that, two, yeah, 99, 2000. Basically, all of this makes it so everyone needs to vote. And if you're on the left, don't sit this out like 2016 because we know how that ended. And then we know how the next four years went. And there's something irritating about the people that far on the left thought Hillary was too centrist, didn't vote for her, Trump gets elected, then they spend the next four years bitching about it, protesting about it, crying about it. It's like, well, get involved this time and make sure you vote. So yeah, there's just it, it, this just bums me out because... Of course we have time, but I, I remember about a year ago I was talking about how it was looking good that Biden would be able to beat Trump again, but I'm like, of course there's going to be unforeseen, unforeseen events that could happen down the road, and it seems like we are sadly seeing a huge culmination of that. The rise of RFK Jr., Israel, Ukraine, inflation, the economy, Trump just being able to steamroll over all of the other Republican candidates. It does, it does scare me a little bit, and so Biden needs to find a way to really appeal to the progressives. But of course, messaging has never been his strategy. And some of the loudest voices in the Democratic Party are turning on him. They've even turned on Bernie Sanders about Israel. So it's it's kind of insane. But if you are on the progressive left and Biden's not your first choice, just remember that it's looking like he's going to have to be the choice for the Democratic Party. Because if not him, then probably Trump, sadly. Now, another building story that I'm just going to touch on briefly Mohammed bin Salman, right, de facto leader of Saudi Arabia. He met with Ibrahim Raisi, his counterpart, leader of Iran, for the first time since March, since they restored diplomatic relations after kind of a decade-long silence of ho building hostility, obviously. And this is kind of troubling because... Both, um, you know, two of the biggest leaders of the Islamic world were at a summit in Riyadh that was um, basically meant to discuss the situation in Gaza. And now this is a story that's kind of unfolding now, and there's been talks about this happening for weeks, but it is, it is actually kind of mind-blowing to me that right now you have two countries that have been in a proxy war in, in um, Yemen and in other parts of the world for quite some time are actually meeting to discuss Gaza and I mean, this is <laughs> this is kind of dark, but I feel like the only thing that could bring Shias and Sunnis together would be their hatred for Israel and their hatred for the Jewish community. And yeah, that's not not good at all. And you know, I mean, I've talked about this before, but I know a lot of people are now blaming Biden for the. I, I was watching Ted Cruz on Bill Maher last night. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was quite an interview. I recommend checking it out. But Ted Cruz blames Biden for what's happening in Israel. And I mean, I think it's way too complicated to blame any one president. These are two people that have hated each other since, you know, since before times. And to, to put the blame on anyone is complicated. Now, what I would say, <laughs> now that I say that, if you were to just say maybe this person messed things up, it does kind of point to Donald Trump here more than Biden. You could even point to Obama more than Biden. But we have to remember that Obama did try to normalize relations with Iran. Iran was not on track to make a nuclear bomb at the time. They were going to cooperate with us. Iran, I mean, not Iran, Trump pulls us out of the Iran nuclear deal. And now a lot of reports show that Iran is is about three quarters to, to 80% on the way to creating a nuclear bomb. And I, I worry that if Iran has a bomb, some of its proxies in the region will then have a bomb. Does that mean Hamas gets a bomb? I don't know. I, don't, I hope Iran is not that careless. But I do think we had a time to normalize relations. The Iranian people are quite secular in a lot of aspects. The regime, obviously not. But unfortunately, after we pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal, that's when the hardliners like Raisi came back to power and said, see, this is why we can't bring in secular Western values because they just turn on us. And since then, Iran's become more, more insular. And I think, I think the time to work with them, unfortunately, seems like it's past us. And that, that is disappointing. So we're going to have to watch this. I'll probably do an episode later in the week once we kind of learn more about what's happening between Saudi Arabia and Iran right now. But again, then you do have, again, the Houthis declaring war on Israel Obviously, the Saudis fighting the Houthis in Yemen, as I talked about last week. So it gets really complex. Anyways, moving on, I want to talk about Italy. Time and time again, I have covered Italy, a little bit at least. And I have talked about Giorgia Meloni, current prime minister of Italy. And she obviously has had some kind of troubling ties in her past to kind of post-Mussolini fascism. What I mean here is that it was like at the age of 15, she's from Rome, she joined the Youth Front, obviously English word of it, which is kind of the youth wing of the Italian social movement, which is a neo-fascist party, and she was highly involved in kind of these neo-fascist, I wouldn't say quite as radical as like Mussolini era, but definitely all about like right-wing populism, nationalism being against same-sex marriage, nuclear family, or saying that nuclear families are always to be headed by males. She was against gay rights. She was skeptical of NATO, the European Union. You know, she, before, before Putin's invasion of Ukraine, she was kind of aligned rhetorically with Putin. Now, since she's been the prime minister, I will say she hasn't been quite as crazy by any means. Though, though her immigration policies are probably still where I think you could say she has the most issues. So anyways, she ran basically, like her election promise was to stop boat crossings from North America. And the reason I say that is because if you guys kind of follow the like Southern Europe and how close it is to North Africa... It is a hotbed, and it and obviously how it's related to the Middle East as well, it is a hotbed for migrants and asylum seekers. Pretty much every day if you go on European news, you'll see reports of a boat of migrants sinking and the migrants drowning in the Mediterranean off the coast of Greece or off the coast of Italy, and it's 
tragic and horrible and and the thing here too is that like if you, if you put yourself in the mind of say kind of a right wing politician in southern Europe you would say that Italy is in a unique place because of its location on the Mediterranean you would argue that it's easy for migrants to get there and then once they get into Italy they are then able to get through the EU so the argument that a lot of more right wingers or immigration hawks would say is that Italy unfortunately, is a geographic dream for migrants trying to get into Europe. And I'm not saying that is my stance. My stance is complicated. I do think that there needs to be more limits. I think the European Union needs to work together to better handle it. So countries like Italy and Greece are not taking up the majority of them. It is really complicated. But it, it is a fact that Italy is a perfect like step, stepping stone for migrants to get in and then go out, go throughout the EU. And so anyways, um, the... I think it was Politico had a good article. It says here in quotes, Despite Maloney's election promise to stop boat crossings from North Africa, more than 145,000 people have arrived in Italy by sea so far in 2023, compared to around 88,000 in the same period in 2022. Obviously, you have Sudan, Ethiopia, Tigray, Syria, soon Hamas, I mean, uh, Gaza. The world's not a very stable place right now, so it's not surprising. And so basically, <laughs> this, is, this is interesting. So Maloney's new strategy, which I'm sure her base will like, the EU will hate, and I think human rights organizations will find illegal, is she wants to build two migrant centers in northwest Albania where they're going to house migrants that are rescued at sea by Italian boats. These are not ones that have made it ashore. I, I want to make that very clear. Because once they make it ashore... It's a whole other process, and then I think they have to go through adjudication similar to asylum seekers in the United States once they actually touch down on U.S. soil. So, anyways, you have Edi Rama, the Prime Minister of Albania, and you have Prime Minister Maloney, and they announced this at a joint press conference last week. They said, in quotes, Mass illegal immigration is a phenomenon no EU member state can handle alone. And so they are going to do this. Obviously, they're close geographically. I should also remind people that Albania is actually a non-EU state. It applied for membership but did not get it. And so this is going to be fairly interesting. And I think the thing here is they're trying to do it, obviously, before they get to, get to the shore... And then I guess they just apprehend them at sea, or if they save them at sea, then they send them to Albania. I mean, it sounds like a mess, but I guess this is what happens when your main campaign promise was to crack down on immigration, on undocumented migrants, but it didn't work, because as I said earlier, 145,000 have already arrived this year, 88,000 the previous year. So obviously Maloney's realizing this isn't working, Albania, not, not the place I'd probably want to send this, but this isn't the first time we've actually seen this. It is obviously unique because it's a deal, it's an actually official deal struck between an EU member and a, non, and a non-EU member, but actually I think it was about a year ago that the UK, the United Kingdom, um, had a plan at least laid out to send asylum seekers to Rwanda, which I always found kind of crazy because if you're sending people that need help or are trying to escape a violent or unstable place, sending them to Rwanda doesn't sound great to me. That's like, 
if you have like Honduran migrants, you just put them in El Salvador. Not not ideal. And so, anyways, I guess this UK deal with Rwanda was halted after a court found it unlawful. But but as of now, it does not seem like this Italian Albanian one is. So it seems like it is happening. And now, <laughs> let's see. Let me find the the quote here. There there's a guy Ricardo Maggi who is the secretary of the left-wing More Europe Party in Italy, obviously translated into English, but he said on X that the deal would lead to the creation of, in quotes, a sort of Italian Guantanamo, outside of any international standard, outside of the EU, without the possibility of monitoring the detention status of the people locked up in those centers. Critics have said it's different. It is different, obviously, because they're not putting terrorists suspected war criminals out there. But then again, I guess in a sense, it is somewhat problematic and you can understand the parallels because what what they're doing is the Italian government is asking Albania if they can put up prison centers in Albania, but under Italian jurisdiction. But because the land is not inside of the European Union, people have to ask, will these centers hold up to EU oversight, to EU laws, to human rights standards that may exist in the EU, but do not exist in Albania. And Politico notes here in quotes, the centers would be under Italian legal jurisdiction, constructed at Italy's expense, sorry, and are expected to open by spring 2024. Children, pregnant women, and vulnerable people won't be sent to the centers, but will, but will instead have their applications processed in Italy, according to Maloney. And, I mean, I think, again, this move seems like it could be a human rights disaster waiting to happen. The center and the left in Italy are freaking out, saying this is not right. And I don't think it is right, because I, I have never disagreed completely with Maloney on the idea that Places like Italy take a huge amount of migrants, while a lot of the other parts of the European Union don't have to do it. And I've sympathized with that. And I think there does need to be reform inside of the European Union to either be more harsh on the asylum process or to work together to make it where, you know, if people enter in Italy, other countries help bridge that gap and bring them into other countries to help adjudicate the process for citizenship. Like there are other ways to do this, but I feel like this is a, this is something I've talked about in the United States, actually, where if the moderates and the centrists and kind of the reasonable establishment types don't find a rational solution for immigration, then the extremists will. I don't want to go as far as calling Maloney a fascist, but she's definitely far right and there's been no feasible solutions for a long time. So now she's doing something that, that could end up very draconian, very dark, very authoritarian, because the Italian Italian jurisdiction in Albania that is not exactly known for its human rights record or its equity or its, its, its economic growth, like this just seems to me like a pretty nefarious ploy to basically find a way to deal with migration because Maloney hasn't been able to keep her campaign promises going so far. So not sure if this is totally an an Italian Guantanamo, but it does have the writing on the wall of being something similar and not going well. 
Now, I guess we could say that there are alternatives to this because in late, mid to late October, Italy did sign a deal with Tunisia that is meant to take in about 4,000 workers. And it also requires pledges from Tunisia to basically help stem pressure from migrants at its borders as well. Because as I've said before, a lot of them go through Tunisia, much like a lot of migrants go through Mexico to get to the United States, but that doesn't mean they're Mexicans or Tunisians. And so kind of like how Trump pressured Mexico to, you know, the stay in Mexico policies, Maloney's government has been pressuring um, countries like Tunisia on the North African coast to help stem this issue as well. And the deal was signed in October and Reuters notes here in quotes, it envisions regular migration channels for qualified workers willing to come to Italy. An Italian briefing note said, as Rome also promised to help Tunisia in its effort to stop migrant smugglers and create job opportunities for the young. Also, some of this deal, I think, involved investment in North Africa. So look, this stuff, okay to me. Definitely okay to me. Uh, Obviously, sub-Saharan countries, I think, are where the main issues are right now. And I think it is good to have other countries working here. Now, some of the people that the Italian government met from Tunisia, not exactly great. Reuters does note President Syed, who was invited to a migration conference hosted in Rome in July, faced criticism after he shut down parliament and began ruling by decree and what the opposition says was a coup. And some people are saying like this deal with Tunisia is bolstering radicalism and the government that actually shut down the Arab Spring later after all that went down in the early 2010s. But at the same time, like you're going to have to find ways. And I would prefer, you know, the Italian or Greek or Spanish governments working with North Africa like this migrant programs, visa programs. That's how Germany and other countries did it in the seventies and eighties. That's how the United States under Reagan had pretty good immigration policies for a while. You need to go back to that. And I'd rather us making deals with North African countries instead of building these prison centers that sound like Guantanamo Bay in Albania. I'm sorry, I'd rather have deals than an Albanian immigration center under Italian jurisdiction. So we'll move on. But yeah, I think it's a fascinating one that we'll have to follow more. Speaking of Italy, because we're, I guess we're really focusing on Italy today. Basically, it's probably no secret that Italian uh, (laughs) politics, it's been a shit show. The Economist notes here, nearly every government in the last 20 years has tried to introduce a new electoral law, a constitutional reform, or a change in the relationship between the center and the regions. Center meaning Rome, regions meaning the different provinces, right? And basically, Georgia Maloney, (laughs) who I've already talked about, she wants to do all of those things, introduce a new electoral law, a constitutional reform, and a change in the relationship between the central government and the different Italian regions. And getting into the nitty-gritty for a second, basically any change to Italy's post-Mussolini constitution that came out in 48, it requires a two-thirds majority in the parliament. And and in Italy, that's been something that no government has been able to do. (laughs) <laughs> it's been impossible. That's why Italy's had more prime ministers in the last like decade than pretty much anywhere else. It's because they haven't ever been able to have a majority or any solid 
consistent, long-living coalitions. And so basically, from my understanding, because they can't get that two-thirds majority in parliament, they can do a referendum. And I guess, even though there'd be a referendum, it could still be thrown out by the courts. So it's a mess, but it seems like Maloney, again, I think she's trying to keep up with her kind of populist reform she wanted to do. She's potentially building a prison complex in Albania. But she's also looking at a bill to give Italy's governments, regional governments, more power. And that's slowly passing through parliament. And (laughs) the Economist notes on November 3rd, the prime minister announced, in quotes, the mother of all reforms, a bill that would both alter the constitution and require a new electoral law. Her cabinet has just approved her plan, though the details are sure to be amended when it's sent to parliament. And so some of her aims I actually do think sounds reasonable. Like I said, Italy's been on its 70th government since the Second World War. (coughs) Excuse me, the, The Economist notes here in quotes, a laboratory mouse lasts longer than a typical Italian administration. (laughs) But basically, it does seem like she wants to, to create a more stable political environment, which Italy obviously lacks, 70 governments. It's almost like a government a year. Let's do the math here, 60, 10. Okay, like like a government every year and a half. So she also thinks that these proposals would be, would be more democratic in a sense. But I, I, I actually personally like the idea of Rome being weaker and regional governments being stronger in theory. We also have to remember that the north and the south are split and divided. You have like a center left and a far left and a center right and a far right that are just di- just completely opposed. And Miss Miss Maloney is kind of doing this, from my understanding, without even talking to the opposition. And she hasn't mentioned this to the public. This is kind of one of those administrative creeps that's happening where her administration and her side is doing this in secret. And basically, the one thing in all of this that worries me is the direct election of the prime minister. And it's interesting because her coalition won power last year basically on the idea, and they promised voters this too, that basically they could elect, directly elect the president in a direct democratic type of system. But instead, Georgia Maloney and her coalition are now promising you can directly elect the prime minister. Without going too far into the weeds, this is just antithetical to the parliamentary system that countries like Italy have. Because the prime minister needs to be chosen, appointed by their own their own coalition and the own party they belong to. You know in the United States how we have guardrails from what the founding fathers worried was mob rule, direct democracy, such as electoral college, state voters, all of that type of thing. Well, in this case, one of the guardrails against just mob rule and direct democracy is that parliamentary parties and coalitions elect the leader of that party to become the prime minister. So by directly electing the prime minister, you're completely going against the whole parliamentary system that exists. It, it would just be like, say, say the coalition government in Italy has one person that they want to appoint, but what if they put that vote up to the people and the people have something different in mind? It, a lot of people think this could actually backfire and cause Maloney to lose her prime ministership and her coalition government could fail. 
that would be kind of ironic. But going further into this, I just don't think direct elections for prime ministers make sense. In that case, you would have a completely different system. And I think it's a bad idea that actually leads to more party instability. And there's even not much of a record of this happening around the world. But in the places it has happened, it's a pretty damn poor record. From, from what I've seen, Israel is probably the only place that tried it in the early 90s, 92. And less than 10 years later, it ditched the whole experiment because it actually led to more instability and coalition breakdown. And the Economist notes here, I like this. No other country followed Israel's lead, which ought to tell you something. Yeah, no one's, no one's really tried to do this because, again, it's just not how, how this works. Now, my theory on this, and again, this is a theory, is that Maloney is being very active in, you know, putting migrants in Albania, vocally active about making these deals to quell immigration, vocally active against the European Union. I think she is hoping if they can make some of these reforms and give, this, and give regional governments more power, she can kind of become a populist leader who can appeal to the people and keep herself in power. To me, I think this is just a power grab and a way for her to stay in power more than anything. But again, it could backfire because other times we've seen similar referendums or reforms you know, happen. It can lead to just more instability. And I don't think this is a dumb person by any means. Georgia Maloney, I think, is smart. But this administrative creep and the way her government coalition government is doing this does kind of worry me. So we'll keep you guys informed, but I do think this is a power play for her to try to maintain power, which I find kind of fascinating, honestly. So we'll have to keep you guys updated if anything else happens. Keep you guys updated on Iran and Saudi Arabia meeting. Lots going on. So anyways, have a great Saturday night. Hopefully USC can beat Oregon tonight. Probably will not. They have no defense, but one can hope. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Peace.